Hey, everybody, and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of your favorite podcast about American history. Dang, dude, what the heck happened to America, a.k.a. the greatest podcast in American history. I'm your host, Dylan Shearer, and today we'll be talking about Ronald Reagan and the 1980s in America. Uh, Get ready for some real Reagan slandering here, of course, all based in historical fact, but I would say he's probably one of the worst presidents we've ever had. Maybe not the worst. I'll save that for, you know, the slave owners. Uh, But Reagan was really just truly an awful president. So today we're talking about a couple of things here. Uh, Talking about Reagan's policies, right? So what actually made him a a bad president in my mind. Deregulation. Uh, Talk about the end of the Cold War. uh, And as well as the first uh, part of Bush's, first Bush won in office, right? Uh, He served immediately after Reagan. So a couple of questions here. What were the culture wars of the 1980s, right? That will be one of the guiding questions for this podcast episode. Uh, What was Reaganomics, right? That's this word that gets thrown around a lot, uh, sort of used by both sides, honestly. Uh, So we're looking into what that actually was. And then how did American Cold War policy change during the 80s, right? So we've been talking about the Cold War ever since our podcast on World War II, and now be sort of nearing the end of it, or at least sort of the official end, uh, and sort of looking at how policies change during that time. So before we get going here, I just want to talk about an artist um, for today, uh, an artist and activist, David Wojnarowicz. Um, I'm, once again, sorry for uh, probably... Uh, pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, He was an artist and AIDS activist in the 1980s. Uh, He died in 1992 due to complications with AIDS. Um, He sort of became famous uh, in 1992 after his death and sort of a broader, the broader uh, American community. Uh, After U2 used some of his art on their cover uh, for their album One, he sort of is known for a lot of things, right? Um, the the jacket that says, if I die of AIDS, forget burial, just drop my body on the steps of the FDA. Uh, he was associated with AIDS activist groups like ACT UP, Grand Fury, and other ones as well. He also mostly won a case against the American Family Association in 1990 after they unfairly sort of used his work without accreditation, uh, without payment in an anti-NEA pamphlet. Um, so you can sort of I would uh, look up some some of his art, right? It's sort of fascinating stuff here, uh, very moving, very powerful uh, pieces of art. So I, I would look look up some of his uh, uh, pieces, right? I think they're they're very important. Uh, and so we're talking a lot about sort of activism and AIDS activism uh, during this time, as well as what Reagan did to sort of push back against that, and not just push back, but you know have a hand in the in the death of, of thousands of people who died died from AIDS during this time. So Reagan's America, uh, right? We talked about the rise of the new right in last week's podcast episode, coming off of that, you know, the the New Deal uh, liberal sort of era, pushing back against that right, thinking that you know these freedoms had gone too far for too many people, uh, the government was spending too much money, right? Sort of. All of this sort of just basically, though, a, a racist reaction, uh, sexist reaction to the increased freedoms of people in the United States. Uh, Reagan sort of appealed to that new right and, and both sides of the new right, sort of right, those economic conservatives we talked about, as well as the religious conservatives, uh, who are often one of the same, but there were some differences between them. While President Reagan passed huge tax cuts, uh, passed tuck cuts on social services, uh, while also raised military spending to new levels. 
Uh, he deregulated industry and financial institutions, as well as sort of crushed unions throughout the United States. Uh, he also nominated Supreme Court justices that uh, made decisions supported by much of the religious right, uh, helped turn the court from sort of it had been that sort of liberal period uh, and put it back to its more conservative place. Uh, he also supported abortion bans and bringing back prayer in school and sort of actively ignored uh, the AIDS crisis, denigrated the AIDS crisis, and as well as growing economic disparity. Uh, so we're going to talk about how he did all of that. So Reagan, uh, sort of famously prior to politics, had been an actor, right? Uh, that's sort of where he came out of. Uh, he was the, the two-time governor of California prior to his presidential run. He actually started his political career as a New Deal Democrat, right? He had been the head or been an actor. He was the head or an active member of, of an actor's union. Uh, and he started out as a New Deal Democrat, but sort of saw the winds turning in politics, right? Sort of saw the rise of this new right uh, and became a staunch anti-communist and conservative uh, sort of courting some of those uh, Southern Democrats who had left the party over its civil rights stances uh, and sort of got them to come over to the Republican side. This is what's called the Southern strategy, right? Sort of an active thing that was done, right? You know, you start talking about people always say, well, you know, there's the Democrats were, were the racists in the South. And that's very true. But through the Republicans in, you know, during this time, uh, led by Reagan in a lot of ways, uh, sort of got those racist uh, Democrats in the South, those the Republican, the, the Democrats. Democrats in the South who didn't want to have civil rights platforms or brought them over to the Republican side. Reagan also courted wealthy white Republicans, uh, promising them sort of lower tax rates, both personally and corporate, uh, for their companies, uh, as well as sort of ran on, you know, defunding New Deal era programs and not pushing for more civil rights laws, right? So very much just sort of an active part of his campaign. And this captured the imagination of many people in the United States. Reagan won handily in the election, beating out Carter, who was running for a second term, right? Carter, remember, had been dragged down by the Iran-Contra crisis, as well as sort of the economic crises going on, the, uh, the oil crisis gas crisis in uh, the United States, uh, and sort of just was handily defeated by Reagan, very much more personable than Carter as well. Uh, Republicans also took control of the Senate in, in 1980. So there's sort of three main core tenets uh, to Reagan's sort of actions in office, what really describes his conservatism. One was his sort of deregulation practices to promote a quote-unquote free market. He supported quote-unquote traditional values, right? As talked about before, that is often just a, a dog whistle for sort of racist attitudes, right? A return to, you know, sort of white people being in charge or a lack of freedoms for other people. And then sort of the staunch militant anti-communism. And that was sort of different, if you remember, during Nixon, right? There had been this detente over the Cold War. Nixon had gone to, to Russia, gone to China. You know, uh, the premiers had come over to the U.S. Uh, and sort of Reagan returned this very staunch anti-communism that you had seen prior to Nixon. And pretty much everything Reagan did in office sort of falls under those three ideas, right? Deregulating, supporting traditional values, or staunch militant anti-communism. So let's look at some of his economic policies here. Uh, over three years, he cut federal taxes by 25%. So it's a huge, huge amount. Argued for some for what he called trickle-down economics, which is this idea that uh, you know if you cut taxes for the top earners, that extra money will then trickle down to to the lower earners, right, to the middle class and to to the poor, because they'll have more money to spend on things, right, which will sort of promote a market growth. Uh, this has been proved to be wrong 
you know, thousands of times. It didn't work at all. Rich people just kept that money. They didn't start spending more, uh, and they just saved it for themselves. It did not trickle down to anybody else. Trickle-down economics, also known as Reaganomics, you know, voodoo economics, free market economics, supply-side economics. Voodoo economics actually coined by George Bush, uh, surprisingly enough, uh, it sort of become the the most negative term there. Um, it didn't really work. Sort of those tax cuts, right? Uh, a lot of times they were just made up by increases in local and state taxes because uh, that federal money that would have gone to state and local governments uh, was being cut through these tax cuts, uh, and so states and local governments had to make up that money somewhere else, and they did it by raising their own taxes. But it made Reagan look good in the eyes of a lot of voters. Uh, to sort of pay for these tax cuts, Reagan cut social programs, uh, mostly uh, cutting benefits for mothers with children, cutting food stamp benefits and unemployment compensation. Uh, you see the idea, you know, people living off welfare coming about during this time, sort of that welfare queen idea, which is actually sort of developed more during Clinton's time, but comes about uh, during this time as well. Right, saying these people are just living off the government. We need to, you know, they need to go out and get jobs, right? When really it's most of them did want to jobs or working were working jobs. They were just getting paid enough. Uh, he did leave, Reagan did leave Medicare and Social Security alone. Uh, he knew where a lot of his votes were, right? Older people, and so he did not cut those. Uh, he also increased military spending by $1.2 trillion over a five-year period, right? So we're talking about trillions now. No longer is military spending in the billions. It's now in the trillions, uh, and that was brought on by Reagan. And Reagan actually, you know, everyone talks about how Reagan shrunk the federal government. That's not true. Uh, he actually expanded government spending uh, over his term, uh, leading to a growing national debt. And that expansion largely came through military spending. So, you know, he talks about how he, he cut federal spending, with all these taxes, cutting all these, you know, benefits and social programs. But in reality, he actually expanded government uh, spending, just aiming it in different direction. And these uh, economic policies, right, they're not just policies. All of these things have effects. Uh, they affect normal people. Uh, they affect you know every the everyday lives of people in the United States. So we're gonna look at some of those effects. Uh, so as I mentioned, trickle down it never worked. Money has just stayed in the hands of the rich, right? Those people who got those extra tax cuts, extra corporate benefits, didn't end up spending that money in other places. They just kept it for themselves, putting it into their own savings accounts or investing it in the stock market, something which doesn't really bring more jobs. And so the wealth gap in the United States increased. We talk about there's always sort of been a wealth gap in the United States. It's varied over time. Uh, the immediate post-World War II period saw it shrink tremendously, but sort of it started expanding again in the 70s and then really exacerbated in the 80s into where it is today, right, where we see this huge, huge, massive wealth disparity in the United States. That, that wealth gap was only sort of exacerbated by those cuts in welfare programs. So poor people not only stayed poor, but they had less money than they did before. Four, right? So poor people got poorer under these uh, programs. Uh, and so that income gap would continue to grow by sort of massive, massive leaps and bounds. On uh, the short term, his tax cuts actually caused a recession. They made life worse for people in the United States. Eventually, though, in 1984, those sort of huge increases in defense spending 
did sort of spark an economic recovery. You see a sort of economic growth largely in these military military fields uh, and sort of some uh, you know peripheral ones as well. And then Reagan sort of rode that massive economic recovery to a huge electoral win over Walter Mondale in 1984. Reagan won all but two states, sort of much, even bigger than his win over Carter, right? One of the biggest wins in United States history. Uh, a side note here during all of this, I skipped over you know a three-year period pretty quick. In, in in March 30th, 1981, there was actually an assassination attempt on Reagan's life. He was shot by John Hinckley. Uh, Hinckley believed that doing this would impress Jodie Foster, the actress Jodie Foster. Hinckley's actually out of jail now, uh, trying to make it as a musician, uh, a very disturbed guy. So that's just sort of something that happened in between there. Uh, some more economic policy effects. Uh, by the end of the 1980s, though, the tax cuts and the deficit spending had sort of led to the largest peacetime budget deficit in American history, almost all that uh, budget deficit coming from military spending. Uh, tax revenues remained low, right, but wealth continued to remain up, to move upward. So despite there being lower taxes sort of across the board, wealth sort of just continued to be concentrated in the hands of fewer and fewer people. Uh, you also see industry continuing to leave the country, right? That continued uh, sort of deindustrialization of the United States. Uh, but and at the same time, you see financial, real estate, and banking interests sort of booming. Uh, so these sort of financial uh, interest, financial growth uh, is growing a lot, but sort of that industry, which generally employs more people, uh, is shrinking. Also uh, looking at some of these deregulation policies, as part of his small government initiative, uh, Reagan began removing government regulations on several industries. Uh, this is all done in the name of increasing competition. Uh, sort of promoting industry and providing lower prices to consumers. The argument is that regulations on businesses make it harder for businesses to do to make profit, right, and make it harder for them to provide lower prices to consumers. Of course, a lot of those regulations are very much about safety, ensuring that companies aren't, you know, doing massive amounts of environmental damage or aren't hurting their employees or providing dangerous products to their consumers. And as a sort of, as a result of these regulations, right, companies did start to make uh, massive profits and increased uh, and while doing so also increased uh, pollution. Reagan also deregulated Airlines more than Carter had deregulated savings and loan institutions. This deregulation would increase some uh, deregulation that had already happened, uh, and there would be sort of only increasing deregulation on these uh, savings and loan institutions. Um, he also loosened sort of environmental regulations uh, for corporations and on car emissions, right? So loosening a lot of these sort of protective regulations that have been in place uh, and sort of loosening them, allowing companies to do a lot more things that they hadn't been able to before, leading to massive profits for companies, but also sort of increased damage on both consumers and the environment in general. Uh, some of his political appointees, many of his Supreme Court nominations, and then as well as lots of his administrative and judicial appointments, right? So those lower courts, as well as just sort of White House appointees, went to social conservatives. That was sort of one of the promises he made on the campaign to get the backing of these social conservatives was that he would appoint them to these justice positions. Anti-abortion, anti-school busing, anti-affirmative action, and pro-pair uh, and school activists were all sort of nominated to various positions during Reagan ta Reagan's time in office, very much part of a conservative, e of an you know, concerted effort by these conservatives to get these people in place to sort of push back, try to roll back some of the efforts done in the 70s to sort of increase those freedoms. 
uh, people like Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, all appointed by Reagan. O'Connor is actually more liberal than Reagan expected, but still largely uh, a stalwart conservative. And Antonin Scalia, of course, one of the most conservative justices ever on the Supreme Court. Uh, there's also sort of, you see, increased polarization, not just with class divisions, right, with wealth divisions, but also in culture and in sort of race relations in the United States, becoming only more and more prominent during the 80s. Uh, Reagan's tax policies, as I keep harping on, continue to increase the wealth gap. Uh, you see it just massively grow during the 80s. Uh, you also see the new rights, social policy, and cultural battles continue to sort of draw sharp dividing lines between many Americans. Uh, I'll talk about the wealth gap a little bit more. Clearly one of my favorite things to talk about. And this didn't happen by accident, right? I would I'd argue, and a lot of historians would argue, that Reagan's tax and economic policies were specifically designed to benefit the wealthy. And they worked. Between 1978 and 1987, the number of billionaires in the U.S. grew from just one to 49. Uh, Howard Hughes was that one billionaire, the aviator guy. Uh, the number of people. And so this isn't just helping the wealthy, right? It's also hurting the poor. Uh, you see the number of people living beneath the poverty line increased from 29.3 million in 1980 to 33.6 million in 1990, right? So a growth there. You also see the middle class begin to shrink in the United States as sort of the rich captured more of the nation's wealth, right? That's coming with the deindustrialization, those good union industrial jobs that provided middle class lifestyles for many Americans are beginning to go away. Uh, and sort of you see the amount of white collar jobs shrinking and sort of you, so that middle class begins to shrink. During the 80s, about the top 1% of the richest Americans held more than 40% of American wealth, which was a huge increase from what it had been before in you know, the 60s and 70s. This was part due to social welfare cuts and the loss of unionized industrial jobs. Uh, this wealth gap uh, wasn't race blind. There's a huge racial aspect to it as well. Black, uh, Latino, and Puerto Rican people were hit much harder by this loss of uh, the sort of middle class, the shrinking middle class in the United States. Percentage-wise, too, vastly more people of color uh, lived beneath the poverty line than white people did. People living in these former manufacturing areas in the North were hit especially hard during the 1980s by this. You also see sort of continued urban decline under Reagan. Many American cities continued to see much of their tax base leave the city during the 1980s, move out to the suburbs. Uh, you also see social services being cut as a result of federal tax cuts and then also state loss of you know budgets. Uh, many saw cities sort of as dangerous, decaying places. This was sort of a racist uh, attitude, right? And sort of both intent and tone, uh, sort of, you know, Especially you see like, you know, New York being the sort of racist city. People, people having racist ideas about big cities like New York and Chicago uh, during this time. Uh, you also see drug, drug use and gangs proliferate in cities in the 80s, largely due to lack of opportunity for young people uh, and sort of decreased city services to help people out. Uh, in response to this sort of increases in crime and drug use, uh, some of which were real, some of which were imagined, cities began instituting crackdowns on drug use instead of, you know, increasing social services. They started cracking down on drug use, leading to something called the war on drugs. Right, this crackdown became known as the war on drugs. Uh, so it was very racially motivated, quote unquote, crack cocaine uh, was seen as the black drug. 
uh, and penalties for its possession were much, much harsher than those for cocaine, which is seen as a whiter drug, uh, almost a thousand times higher, right? So you get if someone is caught with the same amount of crack cocaine versus regular sort of cocaine, uh, they would receive up to a hundred times harsher penalties. That meant jail time, longer jail time sentences, higher fines uh, for crack than for, for cocaine, right? All just racially motivated uh, ideas. You also get the introduction of very harsh three-strike laws, quote-unquote, uh, which disproportionately affected people of color. The prison system went through a massive increase of funding and the number of inmates as a result of the war on drugs. Um, you actually see this has very much downline effects, too. Uh, if you look at California specifically, uh, UC schools used to have incredible, incredibly high funding, uh, secondary schools. And in the 80s, that funding basically is taken away and given to prisons. At the same time, you see the prison population increase, the number of uh, enrollment in UC schools go down, right? So they're sort of basically just taking money from education and putting it into prisons. Uh, you see sort of the number of private prisons rapidly, rapidly increase. And that new increase in prison population was proportionally, disproportionately young, black, and male, right? The the stats for on just how many men, black men were in jail is, is just staggering, right? You also see police budgets begin to skyrocket during this period as a result of the war on drugs, in some places beginning to take up at least 50% of city budgets, if not more, right? So despite these declining declining city budgets, uh, largely declining because of lack of opportunities for people, lack of social services, uh, instead of you know giving money to those social services, cities are giving money to police. Uh, you also see some sort of cultural differences going on here. People call it the culture wars sometimes, but sort of that be one of the big places that began was over rap. Right, you'd already see the beginning of these culture wars in, in the '60s and '70s with the rise of this conservative right, and really comes to a head in the '80s. Once again, sort of. Very racist ideas right here about rap. But sort of the main, the, the economy was not the only thing going through transformations in the 80s, right? Uh, you see cultural transformations as well, specifically with the rise of rap. In the 1980s, is sort of this huge cultural force uh, aimed uh, specifically at black youth. Uh, you see early artists like Grandmaster Flash on DMC, Africa Bombada, and others sort of help making a rap a distinctive genre. You also see white suburban youths beginning uh, to purchase rap albums and tape, sort of helping expand hip-hop's rap's reach, uh, and making some musicians, but mostly lots of white record executives, very, very rich. Many of these artists were sort of rapping about having to live in a world that was not created by them or for them. You see, you know, pushing back on the right, saying... The rap is only about drugs, right? Sort of very racist depictions of this music. Uh, and you sort of get these cultural, you know, wars going on. Especially looking at the right, you know, much of the sort of cultural force of this new right came from evangelical Christian leaders using uh, radio and TV to reach their audiences. People like Pat Robertson, Jerry Fowell, Rush Limbaugh, sort of all making their names during the 80s on the sort of culture war side of the right. Sort of stoking fears, right? Saying that the U.S. was no longer a Christian nation, despite clearly the U.S., you know, having freedom of religion, uh, they, you know, railed against looser sexual mores, mores, uh, against drug use, against violence on TV and in video games, against rap music, right? Sort of all these uh, sort of very loose 
racist, you know, sexist dog whistles. Uh, they also continued the fight against abortion, worked, still working to remove teaching of evolution in schools, right? Sort of wild to me that that's still a question, uh, to try to remove sex education classes from schools, uh, to ban books they considered obscene from school and public libraries, right? And obscenities could be anything from, you know, a girl talking about having a period to, you know, anything like as innocuous as someone saying they don't believe in Jesus Christ, like using Christ as, you know, a... a exclamation, right? A lot of these battles on the culture wars were sort of fought at the local level, sort of creating this activist base that the right would call on again and again to get things done, right? Started, you know, doing school board elections for, you know, parents and stuff, and they would continue to call on them. While all this was going on as well, you also see the AIDS crisis coming to light. Uh, Acquired immune deficiency syndrome, that's what AIDS is short for, was first detected in the U.S. in 1981. And by 1988, uh, more than 57,000 cases had been diagnosed. This is almost certainly an underdiagnosis, as many of the early cases were not diagnosed, and many people living with AIDS could not afford to get a diagnosis from a doctor. At the time, right, many considered a disease that only gay men could get. Uh, That's very clearly wrong and incorrect you know, homophobic as well. Uh, and that sort of rampant homophobia led many people to ignore it or even outright say it was a good thing, right? Some people, especially I mean, on the right, uh, claimed it was a punishment for God, from God for the sin of homosexuality, right? This horrible, horrible idea. Reagan ignored the problem. He quote unquote called it the gay disease in the public, right? Just this awful rhetoric coming from here. And not only just ignore it, right, but actively fight against it. I told his surgeon general to not address it publicly uh, and limited funding and research on the disease, right? So specifically limited funding and research on the disease. Uh, In response to this problem, you see groups like ACT UP, Grand Fury, other groups pushing back against this, right? Calling for government officials, even officials like Anthony Fauci, right? Who was in in government at the time to send more dollars and provide more research into HIV and AIDS medication. You still, there are a lot of people in the gay community who do not trust Anthony Fauci as a result of his handling of the AIDS crisis. Uh, Much of this work, uh, these activist groups were centered in New York uh, and through their work, they were able to get clinical trials on new medicines started, but not before the unnecessary deaths of thousands of people. Since this this activism, right, HIV and AIDS medication has come a long way, including the recent invention of PrEP, uh, sort of one of the newest and most effective ways of stopping HIV, right? Um, However, many poor people, especially poor people of color, continue to deal with the deadly virus uh, as HIV and AIDS medications are still very, very expensive, right? And the fact that we do not have um, any sort of Medicare for all system in the United States, only exacerbates that problem. Uh, so Reagan couldn't be president forever, despite you know the clamoring of many Republicans. And so 1988, George H.W. Bush, Bush one, uh, who was Reagan's vice president, ran for president against uh, Michael Dukakis, the Democrat, in 1988. Uh, Bush one was basically like, I'll just do everything that Reagan did, uh, sort of continuing these Reagan era policies, right? Saying he'll just be Reagan 2.0. He accused Dukakis of being soft on crime, started using, you know, liberal as this derogatory term, uh, something we very much see today, you know, woke before woke existed. Bush one won very comfortably, uh, just largely due to his association with Reagan, right? And people had known him as Reagan's VP. I basically just run on Reagan's name. 
Uh, one of the first things he did was appoint Clarence Thomas to Thurgood Marshall's vacancy on the Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas, of course, uh, one of the most clearly one of the most clearly conservative justices of all time, also connected in a lot of ways through his wife to these alt-right groups behind those, you know, the January insurrection attempt uh, and sort of the, the receiver of... Uh, Funding, uh, funded trip, funded vacations from various conservative groups. I don't think he's a good justice. Uh, and there's sort of not just because of his uh, rulings, but some of what he's done, you know, behind the scenes as well. Clarence Thomas, uh, sort of his the nomination to go through Congress was also sort of very noteworthy in the news for uh, Anita Hill. Anita Hill accused Clarence Thomas of sexual misconduct uh, during the confirmation hearings. Uh, and Anita Hill was sort of lambasted by people like Joe Biden for basically saying she was trying to ruin this guy's career. So sort of this horrible uh, sort of pre-Me Too stuff going on there. Um, just awful, awful things. Um, H.W. Bush had to deal uh, with the savings and loan crisis, which came about sort of as a result of Reagan's banking deregulations. Uh, as a result of those deregulations, right, you get a number of new savings and loans institutions coming about, uh, starting to compete with banks. Um, basically, what these did, what these uh, institutions could do as a result of deregulation was use customers' money to invest in high-risk real estate deals. Some companies were successful, right? That risk panned out for them, uh, and they used their windfalls to buy up smaller companies. Uh, but not all of them were successful uh, because they're very high-risk, and risk you know, involves losing, and millions of Americans lost their savings. As a result of this crisis, uh, Bush started a program to pay back some of their lost savings to the tune of $500 million but sort of a very expensive bill, especially because deregulation was supposed to save consumers money, right? But instead, companies were just doing risky bets with it. Uh, you also see the beginnings of a recession in 1990. Uh, unemployment was at 7%. You see many companies uh, downsizing or continuing to move or continuing to move jobs overseas. The number of Americans in poverty rose to 2 million. Bush tried tax credits and middle-class tax cuts, right, trying to do that Reagan playbook, uh, but they were not effective at stopping the recession. Bill Clinton uh, used that recession to come into office in 1992. So going back a little bit, uh, looking at the Cold War, you see the sort of end of the Cold War during this time. Uh, Reagan himself took a very hard line against the Soviet Union uh, with the presidency, called it the evil empire, quote-unquote. Uh, this hard line wasn't just rhetorical. He increased CIA operations around the globe, increased anti-communist propaganda campaigns at home, and then also massively increased military spending. This sort of reignited the arms race. If you remember during Nixon and then later presidents, they had signed these SALT treaties to try to cut back on arms development. But Reagan sort of used this new military budget to buy and manufacture new arms. The Soviet Union, which at that point was led by Yuri Andropov, sort of reached out to try and cut back on missile manufacturing, but Reagan refused, right, under the sort of hard-line Cold War stance. I also started the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, which was derisively known as Star Wars, to create space-based weapons platforms, right, to be able to try to shoot down Russian missiles from space. Uh, it never worked. It was basically just a very expensive boondoggle something that the military increasingly is involved in. Uh, however, though, uh, sort of as a result of trying to keep up with U.S. spending, sort of cracks started to show in the USSR. 
in August 1980, the Solidarity Movement in Poland staged a series of workers' strikes, creating their own independent labor union, something which haven't, hadn't been allowed before. This kicked off a sort of a series of strikes around Soviet-controlled countries. I'm not going to get into what happened there. Some were cracked down upon. Some sort of eventually spread. Um, but sort of as a result, uh, coming after and drop off, you see the rise of Mikhail Gorbachev in the Soviet Union. Uh, Gorbachev softened relations between the U.S. and the USSR in Reagan's second term by instituting two policies, perestroika and glasnost. Uh, perestroika means restructuring in Russian. He said about trying to you know restructure the Russian economy on sort of more capitalist lines a little bit. And then glasnost, which means openness in Russian, sort of softened relations between the USSR and capitalist countries, even allowing some U.S. brands to sell goods in the USSR. McDonald's, for example, got permission to open uh, in Moscow uh, and in 1988, and it opened its first uh, store in 1990. I'll see like brands like Levi's coming in as well. Uh, there was some misreductions between Gorbachev and Reagan. In 1987, they agreed to the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which eliminated thousands of missiles. Uh, the USSR also removed uh, their troops from Afghanistan. Uh, they had been sort of mired in Afghanistan for a very long time. You see some comparisons between the U.S. and Vietnam and the USSR in Afghanistan. They sort of, as part of this, you know, perestroika glasnost come down, they removed them, though that was more due to the result of their failing to sort of get to meet their military objectives in Afghanistan uh, than anything. After the Soviet Union left, uh, the Americans backed the Mujahideen, who tried to take control of Afghanistan, but they failed. And in their wake, the Taliban took power in Afghanistan, often using U.S. training and weapons to do so. Um, the U.S. had been sort of helping them. Um, the U.S. continued to do its over and clandestine involvement in the Middle East in the 1980s, tried to intervene in the Lebanon civil war. Uh, as a result of this, Hezbollah, Hezbollah forces kidnapped and killed a number of U.S. citizens and military people in, in 1982 and 1983. The overall sort of arching concerns to the U.S. were oil interests in this region, and though though protecting democracy was often used as sort of the overt rationale. Uh, in 1980, the U.S. supported Saddam Hussein uh, as he fought Iran after Iran blocked the passage of oil through various shipping lanes. Uh, there's a famous picture of Donald Rumsfeld and Saddam Hussein shaking hands hands in 1983. So we were very much uh, sort of allies with Saddam Hussein for a time. You also see this sort of massive Iran-Contra scandal. The U.S. still had sanctions on Iran, but despite despite those sanctions, senior government officials were still selling arms to the Iranian government. Uh, it was discovered then that these officials were taking the profits from those sales and using them to fund right-wing militias in Nicaragua called the Contras. So taking this money basically off the books and using it to fund uh, sort of, you know, right-wing conservative militias in Nicaragua. It was never proven that Reagan knew about this, but Oliver North's testimony, Oliver North was the guy, basically, who was, you know, put on the stand for a lot of this. Uh, his testimony showed that uh, Reagan either didn't care or couldn't really control what his staff was doing, right? So, in any case, still a lack of, of duty there by Reagan. No one really faced that much punishment uh, in the result of this affair. Only one person, Thomas G. Kleins, who 
who was a CIA operative, served any time in prison. H.W. Bush pardoned most people involved in the affair. All right, so people doing all these illegal things, not getting any consequences. In 1989, you see sort of the beginnings of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, former Soviet republics started successful independent movements. There have been earlier ones as a result of those you know, solidarity strikes that have been crushed by the USSR. But in 89, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Romania all began uh, claiming independence. In November 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and the USSR lost control of East Berlin. Uh, Germany was reunited in 1990. Uh, by 1991, the Soviet Union no longer existed uh, as Ukraine and the last of the Soviet republics announced their independence. Much of the fall of the Soviet Union was due to economic pressure. Uh, the USSR couldn't produce enough, basically, to keep up with the U.S., uh, and there was sort of massive poverty across the USSR leading to these resistance movements. Uh, the U.S., though, despite the Cold War ending, um, the U.S., you know, winning it, though clearly we still have problems with Russia today, uh, the U.S. remained very much involved in the world. Brutal wars brutal wars, sort of emerged in many of these newly independent nations as they fought for control, as groups fought for control of these nations. You see nationalist movements fighting communist parties in many places, right? There were still communist parties in a lot of these uh, independent countries, even if they didn't want to be involved in the USSR. Many people still wanted to be communist. Uh, in Bosnia Herzegovina, there was massive quote-unquote, ethnic cleansing, also known as genocide. Eastern Europe was torn apart by these wars. Many countries still have not recovered from them. Uh, and in some, but not all cases, the U.S. was supporting different sides of the conflicts or working to send in U.N. peacekeeping forces, right? So the U.S. still very much maintaining a presence in the war. Uh, you also see the U.S. getting involved in the Persian Gulf War. The, there's a war in 1988 between Iran and Iraq, uh, which ended without sort of a clear victor. Right, The U.S. was supporting Saddam Hussein in that war. In 1990, Saddam Hussein tried to take over Kuwait, which was this very small, oil-rich nation. Uh, as a result of that, H.W. Bush and a couple of other countries organized an embargo against uh, Iraq. Hussein ignored it. Uh, and on January 1991, the U.S. forces entered Kuwait and attacked the Iraqi army. More than 40,000 Iraqis were killed compared to 240 troops in this sort of American-led coalition force. After the result of that pretty quick war, H.W. Bush enjoyed 91% popularity, uh, but the weak economy sort of destroyed those numbers by 1992. So some conclusions here. The 1980s saw much political and cultural success of the new right. Reagan and H.W. Bush sort of retooled the American economy, cutting taxes, social programs, and increasing the wealth of the richest, sort of finally doing away with that New Deal liberal coalition. The middle class continued to shrink while the number of Americans living in poverty increased. Uh, the Cold War ended, but the U.S. continued to use its military force around the world, both covertly and not covertly. Uh, and the sort of success of these right culture wars meant that fights for women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and civil rights uh, were far from over. All right, next time we're going to talk about the 90s on uh, Clinton, uh, but that it, that's it for this podcast. I hope you have a great rest of your day.